Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. This week we join you with a renewed sense of purpose and optimism, having survived six months of coronavirus, four months of lockdown and a full 18 hours in the local on Saturday. It's doubtful whether anything can stop us at this point, though if any words are slurred during this recording, it's only because Weatherspoons was offering unmentionably cheap scotch for breakfast. So this week we take another look at the insolvency bill, which received royal assent shortly after we last went to air. And we ask whether, despite the industry's best attempts uh, to change it, it retains the power to damage defined benefit schemes. Thereafter, we'll discuss the pension schemes bill, on which the government recently suffered no less than four defeats in the House of Lords. So we'll ask the Lords on what of why not and why of oh why. Uh, finally, the Make My Money Matter campaign aimed at shifting some three trillion pounds of pension parts into sustainable investments launched last week. Our guests will give their prognosis while studiously avoiding any pension-related puns on the films of Richard Curtis. Uh, my name is Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by Tiffany Chang, uh, LGPS and DB Policy Lead at the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association, and Jeremy Goodwin, partner at law firm Eversheds Sutherland. Thank you both very much for joining me. First, insolvency then. Uh, there were a number of amendments tabled to the bill, especially concerning its provisions for a company moratorium and the question of super priority status being given to some creditors, but not others. I know there were some changes made to the bill, though I understand some of the more meaningful amendments were not passed in the end. Could you explain to us what the problems were with it? I know it's quite a broad question, but specifically concerning the moratorium and, and, and worries about super priority. Then maybe we, we can we can discuss whether those concerns were adequately addressed in the process. Our understanding of it is that essentially um, the, 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 there were two key problems with these emergency measures that the government was was, was trying to, to put through. Which the PLSA, first of all, we have to say that that we absolutely understand the government was caught between a rock and a hard place. You know that these are unprecedented times, uh, and so these emergency measures were the, the intent behind them uh, were absolutely the right thing to do but uh, pensions became sort of um, an afterthought or not even a thought dur during the, the construction process of these emergency proposals and one of the things that came out of it was that the moratorium really would um, it, it was meant to set aside 40 uh, working days in which uh, companies and employers uh, could have a bit of breathing space from, from, from creditors um, and what that ended up doing is that had the bill gone through in its initial stages and in the way that it was drafted, it really would have caused problems for how pensions are uh, ranked, that they would have been uh, pushed further down the queue and that there would have been a perception that really banks and, and, and lenders uh, were given precedence essentially in an insolvency situation. So essentially what that means for, for, uh, for, for the day-to-day -day is that pensions would be sort of sacrificed because by the time companies Companies were uh, in a situation where pensions could then enter into talks again for negotiation for restructuring. In all likelihood, the assets will, will all be gone because pensions were lower down the rank in, in what they could um, ask for. And what that did in practice was freeze out trustees from pension schemes as well as the the PPF, who acts as the, the trustees as well to, to negotiate on behalf of the schemes, uh, it froze them out from a seat at the table. Um, so, so, so that's number one. And then in doing that, that would have in all likelihood caused a widening deficit in which the remaining solvent companies 
would have to deal with. And what that translates to into practice is that the levy that a lot of companies that, that companies have to pay every year, the annual levy to the PPF would in most cases have risen. So for, for those two reasons, really, it would have really gone against what the government was trying to achieve to begin with, which was to protect uh, solvent companies. And number two, the PPF would, would have been frozen out and DB schemes would have been frozen out of discussions for, for negotiations and pensions would have been sacrificed. So in a nutshell, that, that that's what we're looking for in terms of trying, trying to, to combat against the negative consequences, unintended as they were for pension schemes. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course. I mean, the, the PLSA was one of those calling for a change in the wording of of, uh, of the bill. I know that, that, that there were some changes made. Were your concerns broadly addressed? And is it possible that they could all have been addressed anyway, given that the purpose of the bill arguably just didn't allow for it? Absolutely. The PLSA is actually quite proud that, that we were one of the leading voices uh, in calling for this change. And again, as I said in the very beginning, we understand the government was caught between a rock and a hard place, that these emergency proposals for companies to give them a bit of breathing space needed to happen. But we absolutely did need to flag as the PLSA and um, the other voices in the industry about the urgent need to ensure that pensions were, were, were cited in the bill. So in terms of your question of, you know, it, it, did did we get what we wanted? Um, I think the the, the question the, the the answer to to that question is it, absolutely we a, we were able to ensure the situation is undoubtedly more favorable now to pension schemes than how it would have been originally had had the original drafts gone through. In terms of would would we like to have seen amendments go further? I think in policymaking there's always a push and pull, and uh, I I think that we were able to secure the fact that pensions, trustees of pension schemes, of, of DB pension schemes and the PPF did now have, do now have rather, they, they've been insured a seat at the table, which they, they didn't have before. Jeremy, do you have a take just more broadly on the insolvency bill itself? I mean, uh, concerns, worries or uh, or prognoses? I think what's the thing most interesting is when you look at the Corporate Insolvency Act, you know, it's all about introducing that rescue culture into um, the, the insolvency landscape in the UK obviously came, came about as a result of much lobbying by insolvency experts. And so things like the, the moratorium that we've just been talking about was very, very much designed to try and help businesses. You know, it was pushed through Parliament in a very, very short amount of time to try to help businesses at this very difficult time without them needing to, to um, become insolvent. And obviously when you look at that then, and I know we're going to touch on the pension schemes bill shortly, um, there are some real issues in relation to the criminal offences provisions under the Pension Schemes Bill, which really go against the rescue culture in many ways. And so I think it's really that relationship which is which is most interesting. So I think you've got the uh, Corporate Insolvency Act obviously pushed through Parliament in very uh, short order, and you know, largely because of the PLSA's sensible lobbying, the pensions angle finally being taken into account there, which is great, but it still seems like in relation to the way that legislation is being made, you've got the left hand and the right hand not really talking to each other by the result of the Corporate Insolvency Act. They're really looking at that rescue culture not really being taken into account then when you're looking at the pension schemes bill. Brilliant. Well, that sounds like you've provided my segue for me because uh, obviously we are now moving on to the pension schemes bill. It's been around longer than I have, it seems. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the government is, is obviously recently lost votes on four amendments. Um, it's got potential implications both for the dashboards uh, and also the regulator and also the open DB schemes. But Jeremy, I know that you had uh, a particular, uh, well, a slightly more appropriate and, and interesting segue perhaps than that for me. So I wonder if you, if you wanted to begin us with uh, exploring a little bit more in, in, uh, in that area. 
Okay, so if I perhaps just um, say something in relation to the um, criminal offences side of things. So I think you know, there's, there's two offences which um, were um, which are built into the pension schemes bill. So the first, you know, broadly designed around activity, which is uh, avoiding Section 75 debts, and the second one, it's really the second one that we should be most excited about, which is conduct which puts at risk accrued pension schemes benefits. And that's, that's anything which, which uh, an, an, an act um, which could have a, a detrimental likelihood on someone getting their accrued benefits and where you ought to have known about that at the time. And in terms of the person that, that could be um, liable in relation to one of these uh, criminal offences, it, it, it is as broad as any person. So it picks up advisors, it picks up company directors, you know, it, it is extremely broad. And so I think really it's, it's with that when you're then thinking about the kinds of um, activities which, which may be being carried out, think about the context of the Corporate Insolvency Act, looking at what could be done in relation to uh, extending further credit where that credit is, is secured and through extending that secured credit, you're then making it less likely that the unsecured pensions creditor ends up getting their monies. And by extending that secured credit, for example, to a failing company, are you doing something um, which means that you could then actually be seen to be putting the accrued benefits under the pension scheme in a worse place and therefore potentially subject to a criminal offence? So it, it's that kind of activity, the unintended consequences we were just hearing about in relation to the Insolvency Act. It just really feels like those unintended consequences in relation to the breadth of the criminal offences haven't really been thought about. Sure. Tiffany, did you have a take um, on, on this particular area? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is something the PLSA has been really focused on in, in our lobbying efforts with um, with the, the pension schemes. Well, and I absolutely agree with, with, with Jeremy that the, the, there is too much broadness in the way that the criminal offences aspects of, 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 of the proposals um, are, are applied. And it really could apply, as, as Jeremy said, it could apply to anyone um, involved with schemes such as trustees, banks, lending to employers, insurers, investment counterparts parties and you know really while we absolutely support the need to give TPR more bites basically more sharpness to their bite I think there really needs to be more clarity because of the potential unintended consequences as Jeremy says about you know it, it really could have unintended consequences for the day-to-day -day running of pension schemes it could stifle uh, legitimate corporate activity um, as, as was alluded to and really create unnecessary costs and I think it, it is about being specific it's just too broad the language at the moment and we we do urge the government to, to really think about being more specific in its language so so that it does do what it's intended to do, which is to catch bad behavior, to, to, to deter bad behavior, and to make sure that kind of malicious intent is, is punished appropriately. But rather, the way that it's currently uh, phrased, it really does put in danger the way, you know, it, the day-to-day the, the, the -day running of, of schemes, which we really want to try and avoid, that, that sort of we don't want to clog up the system with unintended consequences, is, is, is the phrase of the day, I suppose. That's certainly the impression I get. I mean, I did a story, actually, it was on the insolvency bill a little while ago, and and pretty much everyone I spoke to in relation to that story used the word unintended at least twice. Um, <laughs> so that that bodes well. I mean, it was pointed out to me at the time on in relation to the insolvency bill that actually the pension schemes bill, if worded in the correct way and passed with relative haste, might provide clarity and maybe restore some protections which, which were arguably lost in the passage of the insolvency bill. I mean, am, am I right in thinking from what we've said so far that that, that it's it, that's a 
potentiality, but it, the pension schemes, but as it stands, is not sufficient to provide those protections. Would that be a, a fair passing of what's just been said? Jeremy, if, I, if you wanted to comment on that? So I'm, I'm not sure that's, that's right. I think you know, from, a, from a pension schemes perspective, I think there are um, a number of, of significant protections which have been built in there. I think it's actually more, um, when you look at it from a, from a restructuring angle and say from a corporate perspective, as to whether the, the unintended consequence of the pension schemes bill is to make um, restructuring harder and to really undermine that rescue culture which we were talking about in relation to the Insolvency Act. You know, when you look at the wider provisions of the, of the pension schemes bill, you've got a lot more there in relation to contribution notices and when they can be used. Um, we've got more there in relation to a, a very sensible extension, for example, to notifiable events. So there's quite a lot in the pension schemes bill, which is genuinely very helpful for pension schemes and the protections which they can have. In that case, uh, I think we'll move on to uh, the final topic of the day, which is the Make My Money Matter campaign. I'm, I'm going to uh, re-emphasize the need to avoid Richard Curtis puns because he's punching <laughs> the Make My Money Matter campaign. And I've seen some terrible ones and I may even have indulged in some myself so um we will not be doing four pension pots and an unethical tobacco investment but um the the goal of the campaign is of course to move some i think it's about three trillion pounds worth of pension pots into more sustainable investments and i know jeremy i think we've spoken previously on this subject before about what currently is the law around uh, making what you could call non-financial uh, ethical investments um, I wonder if, if you could set those out for us. I know that the Law Commission has its two tests, doesn't it, when it comes to making these these sorts of investments? Yes, I think I mean, the key thing is, if you can look at something and, and see from a, a financial perspective that it's um, at least as good as you could achieve through taking into account um, just, just purely financial factors, then that's fine. You can then invest in something, um, you know, matters which then take into account ESG-type factors. So to to make sure it comes back to something which you can see as being financially positive. Then in relation to the other situation, so something where you can't look at something from a, a, a financial perspective, is then when you're making sure you can maybe carry out a survey or membership, and you're then re, really com comfortable um, that it is um, what the members are wanting to achieve. So in that situation, you could then invest in something which uh, is not necessarily financially beneficial, but only in a circumstance where you really understand that that's actually what the members are asking for. Brilliant. And, and Tiffany, because obviously with your, your knowledge of both LGPS and, and sort of defined benefit policy areas, I mean, I imagine that, that this, this falls quite nicely into uh, concerns that, that, that will be present for both. I mean, we, we've covered some ethically questionable LGPS investments before. But these are significantly uh, sized pension parts as well. I mean, uh, it's, it's asking you to project quite far into the future, I suppose. But I mean, would you, would you imagine this kind of campaign to raise public awareness, to get members much more involved in the ethical and investment decisions of their schemes would be successful? Oh, absolutely. I think the PSA definitely agrees with, with the campaign that we'd love to see an increase in, in Savers' understanding of how the pension money is, is, is invested. And um, I, I, I just just to, be, to have my LGPS hat on, I feel like it's important to, to raise their flag and say that LGPS has been thinking about these issues for, for quite a long time. And I think they, they our members would be cross with me if I didn't say that actually um, that there are a lot of lessons that the private sector is now learning from the public sector in terms of responsible investing and, and an ESG focus. So yes, it 
it, it is it's uh, ESG is one of the top priorities for the PLSA and it's and it's I think that the the intent behind uh, the, the the campaign is something that that, that we're, we're we're keen to see feed into how that aligns with 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 our goals as well and and, and bringing um, a, a greater spotlight onto ESG and climate change disclosure and and Jeremy just one more on, on this topic if I may I mean obviously we mentioned that one of the law commission's tests is that these decisions must be made and trustees must be able to show in some form that the decisions around ethical investments are made in line with what they perceive members' interests and also desires to be. And I spoke with Richard Curtis and, and the CEO of Make My Money Matter a few days ago, last week, in fact, I think it was. And they said they, they would really like to see much more by way of um, a, a much stricter requirement to account for members' views and interests. Is there scope in the law as it stands to, to have some form of it's fairly unclear at the moment as to exactly what constitutes taking into account members' interests. Is there scope in the law to give clarity to that, or is that something that really needs legislative change to accomplish? I think we'd want to see legislative change to accomplish that. I think there are obviously you know, huge issues in relation to that. So in terms of what members want, you know, if you look at a, a, a normal pension scheme with the number of members you'd have in relation to one of those schemes, um, you know, to actually try and gauge you know, one particular view which you know, all, all the members want, you know, there, there are some clear, real practical issues in relation to that. So um, going back to what we've talked about before, so if the, the law as it currently stands is very clear that you know, in the vast majority of cases, you're going to be wanting to go back to what remembers best financial interest. And so you go back to the money side. Now, clearly, when you're looking over the long term, taking into account climate change related risks, you can often identify that, um, that, that, that financial benefit because it does better manage risks over the long term. But hanging that on a, a, a survey of members or trying to gauge what all the members want, that there are some real practical issues there which you can see arising. Yeah, and, and Tiffany, just one more for you as well, if I may. I mean, I was writing, I think, yesterday on the Environment Agency Pension Fund, which which is known quite widely as one of the leading uh, funds when it comes to sustainable investments, ESG, and, and all the rest. Um, they're quite keen on, on they're taking it on their own uh, account to, to go and survey members, poll members. And to get them much more involved in investments, they've also signed up to the Make My Money Matter campaign. I think they're amongst the first signatories. I mean, in your opinion, is our LGPS funds in particular quite aware of the need to poll their members? Is this something that they're doing, as it were, on their own back already? Or is there still some work that needs to be done um, to, to, to get members more involved? It's it's a really really great question, um, and as as I flagged the LGPS, uh, this is a huge area of work for them, and we're working really closely with different um, stakeholders in the public sector right now to look at these questions about how members are communicated, um, about best practice, and in fact, right now we're working together with um, the, the Scheme Advisory Board for England and Wales and uh, making sure that the guidance is is updated on responsible investing and, and ESG, and that and that will that that is looking at how to better communicate with with members at the moment. And I think that member comms is, is, is high on the list for, for, for the LGPS. And, and, these, and this is definitely one of the issues there for them. Perfect. So uh, it's worth also just to pick up a theme from we had before. So you've got all the provisions in the pension schemes bill as well, looking at all the climate change provisions and similarly the DWP consultation in relation to the TCSD disclosures, which again will all go to that same element of much more transparency in relation to what pension schemes are doing and probably much more into the member communications in relation to ESG matters. Great, in which case um, that brings us finally to our Always a Pensions 
angle segment. Uh, Jeremy, I think you've got one for us for this, and I think it's the kind of one where I have to declare an interest as when I'm not locked down in Bedford, I live on a boat, and this is nautically themed. Very good. So I think it's, it's the interesting story of the Chatham chest. So this is from the 16th century and went back to uh, seamen who were um, you know, out at sea and uh, had an injury at the sea and come back and they have a, a pension provided for them. And there was actually a physical chest which still exists, a chest in the dockyard now, I believe, um, where um, seamen, while they were able and out at sea, would come and put a particular amount of money into the chest and that chest would then be used in the future then to fund the pensions for those that have been disabled while at sea. Of course, one of the issues that they had in relation to it, you know, particularly when you went through wars, etc., was that there were many more people wanting to take money out of the pot than wanting to put money into the pot. And so what then eventually happened is that the government recognised there was a clear deficit in terms of the, the monies that were left in the chest. And so the government ended up stepping into the situation to then top up the funds going into the pension scheme. So it's one of the uh, very, very first examples of an issue in relation to an underfunded uh, pension scheme having huge issues and the government lifeboat coming in then to try and save the chest and chest. Gives a new meaning to the phrase to bail out, doesn't it? Um... <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Perfect. Um, in which case, I think that brings us nicely to a close um thank you jeremy and thank you tiffany for joining us we'll be back in two weeks time thank you for listening and we will see you then a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.